At this time, I would like to um, uh, let the children know that they can uh, dismiss for kids' worship style. Our scripture lesson comes today from Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 6. This can be found in the Old Testament, so it's towards the front of your Bible. Again, it's Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 6. See, my servant why will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, choir, first of all, for that wonderful offering of praise. Now pray with me as we come to the Lord of the Lord. Father, I pray that our hearts might just be be transfixed by the beauty of the love you've promised to us, that you've shown us in Jesus. I pray that you might just move and stir us as we see the ways that you have served us. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, and be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Amen. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Those words are from the prophet Isaiah. Those words are taken up by Jesus himself in Matthew 4 to describe what he's doing. And those words provide the language that John uses to talk about Jesus' coming. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. As we've been reflecting on how God's light shines in the darkness, the last few weeks we've kind of been looking outward, looking at the darkness in terms of the ways that we sin against each other individually and the ways there are these sinful systems in our world. But the darkness isn't just something out there. We can feel 
that darkness in our hearts as well. I struggle in here with the weight of the world, and I stress about anxieties, and I am discouraged by every little failure, and I feel guilt and shame for things I have said and thought and done, and I wrestle with loneliness, and I hide from people, and I despair at the world and feel like nothing is ever going to change. I feel those things, and I also know because I'm a pastor that many of you feel those same things things. There's this isolating lie that I think that the darkness tells us that we are the only ones who feel that way, that we are the only ones who are wrestling with those shadows in our hearts. And I can promise you that you aren't, that so many of us have those areas of struggle, but that in itself is kind of cold comfort, isn't it? We are all a lot sadder and more ashamed and struggling than maybe we let on. Hooray! Here's what that means, though. It means that if God is going to break into the darkness, he can't just be talking about this external thing. The last two weeks, we've looked at the ways God draws towards us as his creatures in this way that's kind of about the darkness in the world, right? Two weeks ago, he he makes these covenants. He forms these relationships with his people and moves into relationship with us. And last week, he's coming as this king, ultimately to judge and destroy all that is evil in the world. And those are good things, but it doesn't quite reach in here. We can all do, what can all that do, right? For my grief and my guilt and the things that I have done and that have been done to me. And that's where this text from Isaiah really meets us. And there's a third theme of how God draws near for us, which is that he draws near to us as a servant. Our reading comes from the second half of Isaiah. And this prophet, um, Isaiah, he's speaking to Israel, and he's kind of speaking to two sides of this historical divide. So he is, he's preaching in Israel, and he's, in the first half of Isaiah, he's proclaiming this coming judgment of God, that Israel, because of its sin and idolatry and refusal to worship God, is ultimately going to be led into exile. And then in the second half of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah almost looks forward to those people and starts speaking to them, and speaking to them this hope that they have in the face of that exile. And this is from that second half of Isaiah, where he's writing to this future generation, and he's giving them this promise of this coming deliverer, this Messiah, and... um, And pictures, even in the beginning of chapter 52, the way that this Messiah comes and the city of Jerusalem is caught up and it's rejoicing as God bears his arms. And that's kind of what we were picturing last week, this theme of Jesus coming as the king. And we get that at the beginning of the passage we read here from Isaiah 52 and 53 this morning. When Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up. And she'll be exalted. That servant is this king. And he, he's continuing to talk about this, this messianic king that's coming. And we're thinking, okay, you know, yeah, this is Jesus, the king. But then Isaiah immediately follows it up with this. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, so battered, so scarred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations with blood. If you were reading Isaiah then, and if you're reading him now and didn't know this was coming, what you would think is, wait, what? Look at this king of glory, says Isaiah. Look how he has been beaten until he is unrecognizable. 
Watch him sprinkle many nations. And that's Old Testament language. They know he's talking about sprinkling them with his blood. It's the language of sacrifice. Isaiah proclaims that Jesus is this king, but he's not the kind of king that people expect. Instead, he's a king who is also a servant. A king who is also a servant. So that's what I'd like us to just focus on this morning. Just walk through this text and see that kind of servant role of Jesus. We're going to start in 53.1 and just walk through verse by verse and talk about what it means. So starting in verse 1 of 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right here, Isaiah is actually acknowledging how unbelievable this would sound to the people hearing this prophecy, right? That they would, they would think, who would believe that you have this divine king who is also this battered and bloody figure? And then in verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And so that's in the first place about this, this servant of God's, this king's humble place in the world. He pictures him as a young plant, and that probably isn't about age, right? But it's about smallness. It's, he's not a towering tree. He's a, a little sapling. And, and that's followed up by the fact that he's a root out of dry ground. So he's not some lush thing in a rainforest, but a scrawny desert scrub. And this servant is in himself humble too. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He didn't come in royal robes. He doesn't come with this godlike glory, no beauty that we should desire him. It isn't anything about him outwardly that draws people to him. And right there, we're not even to the point of what the servant's doing, but already I feel like there's something there that's good. One of the striking things about the Christmas story, which Isaiah is anticipating here, is the humility of all of it. I mean, have you ever thought about that? God comes into the world, and 99.9% of the world has no idea. I mean, a few shepherds and a couple of these magi from the east come, but I mean, he isn't like the son of Caesar, you know, the emperor in Rome. He isn't even like the son of the high priest in Jerusalem. He is born to a peasant couple in a backwater of Israel, and he's welcomed by field hands and laid in a cattle trough. And there's something beautiful there in how Isaiah anticipates it and then how it's realized for Jesus about us. I think a source of discouragement for many of us, probably always as humans, but especially in our age, is the sense that we are somehow nobodies and we don't matter. We live in this age of the big and the important, right? We have this idea that anybody can become powerful or famous. Anybody can launch a startup or make an app or get some viral video or do something, right? And make the world take notice of them. We all operate on kind of this global stage, but I think that leaves many of us feeling this kind of low-grade shame because if anybody can be big and influential like that, and if when we turn on our TVs we're constantly seeing those big influential people, then that makes us feel like maybe we failed somehow because we're not like that. I was thinking about it this a little bit back. I was reading a book about Christians and vocation. Vocation means like work. Um, and it had all these great stories that I kind of, you know, they were incredible stories about how people changed these things in their lives, about their work to honor Jesus. Um, 
But all of them were big people making these big changes in the world. It's like, oh, here's this high-powered attorney who quit his job at this New York law firm to start a nonprofit. And here's this CEO who decides to, you know, to change how his company's doing things in order to really um, seek to pursue God's callings. And all of that is great. Um, but I was left kind of thinking, where does that leave me and people like me who don't run companies or have you know, high-powered attorney jobs you can quit to start nonprofits? One of the things that I love about the story of Jesus is that when God enters the world, it is not as this great or influential or noteworthy person. He comes as a child to some nobodies in a nowhere, and his disciples are blue-collar dockhands and farmers and an IRS accountant, and from those beginnings, he launches his ministry to save the world. That's actually how God usually works in Scripture. He is not the God who kind of moves outward from the centers of power. He is a God of the outsiders and the fringes. When he chooses a nation, it is not the most powerful country in the world, but rather a bunch of slaves. When he seeks to correct that nation, it is not through the halls of power, but through these prophet, like desert hermits coming with the word from God. And when he comes into our midst, he comes in the form of a humble child. And that should be an encouragement to us. Because that means that our lives matter too. Our scrawny, sapling lives, just like God's servant. God is working through them as surely as he worked through Jesus. So that's the beginnings of this picture, but it's not just that Jesus has humble roots. Keep going in our text then, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. People despised and rejected Jesus. They weren't wowed by him, and in fact, they were kind of embarrassed and ashamed of him. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I mean, just, just one example. Jesus, I don't know if you've thought about this, but Jesus was not especially successful in ministry. I mean, he, he started out and he calls these 12 disciples, right? And a few dozen other people that have kind of heard him teach are following him. And, um, and he goes out and he ministers. And yeah, there's some big crowds that come, but then some big crowds that go. And at the end of everything, um, Jesus hasn't built some, you know, global megachurch, right? He has 11 disciples left and a few dozen people following him. And, um, and man, I mean, he's the son of God, but he probably wouldn't be on the cover of any magazines talking about, you know, the top 25 most influential religious leaders in the world at that time. And even more than that, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In the first place, just that had to be hard, right? I mean, I don't know that we always think about this with Jesus, but Jesus, when you follow his ministry, he's constantly facing, you know, conflict and betrayal and rejection. And he was a human being with human emotions, that experienced all those things in the same way that you or I would have. And he knew other pains as well, some of the deepest pains in this life. He knew grief at the death of people that he loved, and he knew rejection by his family, and he knew the terror of his own death, both the knowledge of it that he carried throughout his ministry and ultimately the realization of it as, um, as he faced it himself, and he knew 
the uncertainty of tomorrow and whether anyone was going to turn out to hear him preach and where the food was going to come from and the ache of giving things your all and not seeing any fruit from it and the agony ultimately of physical death and the loss and separation that he felt from his father. And all of that should be powerful to us because we remember when we say that Jesus is experiencing that, we're talking about God. God has experienced pain. And have you ever thought about that? God has felt physical pain and emotional pain, and he has suffered, and he, in a sense, died. And I say all of that, and yeah, there's a big, complicated thing to parse out theologically about how that works, right? You know, because God's also eternal and unchanging. And, and we can talk about that some other time. But the point is that God, in a real way, experienced himself the pain of this world. And that should radically change how we relate to God. The crazy thing about having a God who came as a servant is that we have a God who is able to empathize with our weakness. A God who, when we come to him with heavy hearts, can say, I have been there too. One of the things I've noticed as we um, walked through, as Elizabeth and I walked through some hard things these last years, is how comforted I feel just by sitting with other people who have walked through hard things too. Not because they make it better, but have you, ever, have you ever felt that? Just that moment where you're sitting there and there is this peace of knowing that I am understood and that you have been down in the mess too. And we can approach God like that. He is not some alien being up in the sky or who when you come to him and confess your pains just kind of looks at you like... You know, not knowing what you're experiencing. He aches with us, and he has walked that road too. Maybe you've heard some version of this story. I, um, I think 12-step programs tell a version of it, but the one I heard was from a guy in the military. Um, and he tells it as there's this soldier who's down in this deep pit, and he can't get out. And, um, you know, I mean, because it's a military story, along comes this officer and, you know, and sees the soldier in the pit, and he... Um, He doesn't help him, he just orders him to get out of the pit, right, which the soldier can't do. And then I think he said along came a quartermaster in his story who can't help him out, but he gives him some paperwork while he's down in the pit. But then finally along comes another soldier, and what he does is jumps down into the pit with the guy. And the first guy who's stuck there is like, what are you doing? And the second soldier says, it's okay, we're stuck down here for now, but I've been in this pit before, and I do know the way out. And the the claim of scripture is that God actually relates to us like that guy somehow. And yeah, that doesn't fix everything. Absolutely. And there's more to say, and we're going to say some of it in a minute, and we've said some of it in the last two weeks. But the more we realize that we have that sort of God, a God who is not just almighty and holy, although he is 100% those things, but a God who is those things and also a servant, one who is acquainted with grief and has suffered beside us, that transforms how we experience him. And that transforms how we walk through our own sufferings and struggles. There is a deep comfort, even in the midst of those hard situations, in knowing that God stands behind and beside us in them. So we see Jesus coming in humility and experiencing pain. But that's not the fullness of the story either. 
It isn't just that God is familiar with grief. It isn't just that he suffers it beside us, although he does. But he also somehow suffers it for us. So verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He has borne our griefs. He's worked something for us. And and this is actually part of why Jesus, for so many people, was and is hard to believe in. We esteemed him stricken by God. People, in seeing this suffering, that's actually part of why they struggled to trust him. We talk about this idea that Jesus is king of the universe last week, right? And we acknowledge that in some ways we struggle with that. This idea that Jesus is this king, that there's ultimately coming judgment and he will take up power. And that can be hard, but we can also struggle with this side of Jesus. I think, I think in our guts, what we expect when we think about how God would come to earth is that it would be as Clark Kent. You know, Clark Kent, Superman, right? You know, born on the planet Krypton and, you know, and lands as a baby on Earth. And, um, and, and he is this force of pure power in the world, right? I mean, bullets bounce off him and he shoots heat beams out of his eyes. And we think that if God came to Earth, that's what it would look like. But for God to come as this suffering servant, that challenges all of our expectations. But there's a reason he comes that way. A reason he does, and that's what we find in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. God is coming in this way because his mission is not simply to conquer us or the world or something, not simply to beat the darkness into submission. Instead, it is to restore our relationship with him. He was pierced for our transgressions. That the things that we do and the darkness we create in this world that deserves a judgment, God himself suffers the guilt of that judgment instead of making it fall on us. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. There's this separation from God that we have because of our sin and rebellion, and God comes to suffer and make peace. There is this brokenness in the world because of it, and God somehow in his wounds is healing that brokenness. And then verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have all turned aside from God and turned against God. And God's response is to bear our evils and seek after us so that we might be returned to fellowship with him. That is a beautiful picture. And one that I think is so familiar if you've kind of been around the church that we miss it. In our world, we think deep down that peace and hope and all of that is going to come from power. Power. It it influences, at the end of the day, everything that we do. We try to get power over each other. We try um, to seek power in the positions that we find in life. We want power in the world, and we want power in our relationships and our marriages. And God has power, right? That's not untrue. He's the ultimate power. And it is true, like we talked about last week, that ultimately, right, this is the other half of that story, Jesus will return in power and reign, 
But um, that isn't the first posture that God takes to make peace or bring hope. Instead, his first move is to give up power in order to make peace. God sees our rebellion, and instead of pushing us away or destroying us, he moves towards us. God sees our hatred, and instead of hating us in return, he submits himself to suffer that hatred. God sees our violence and experiences it himself. He sees our sin and takes it on his shoulders. God comes not first as a conqueror seeking submission, but as a servant seeking peace. And that should tell us two things. That should tell us about how we relate to the world, and it should tell us about how we relate to God. There's this moment in the Gospels where Jesus' disciples are having this argument about um, who's the greatest, which is basically this argument about power. Two of the disciples come to Jesus and ask, you know, when he's reigning in power, they want to sit, you know, right beside him on their own throne so that they can have power, and the disciples all end up arguing. But Jesus ends up rebuking them um, and telling them they've got it all wrong, that the highest place in the kingdom is the place of the servant, of giving yourself up for others. And this is how he sums it up. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is actually evoking this text from Isaiah with those words. He's telling them that he is this servant and that that should be a model for how we relate to others. See, here's what happens in the world. I have rights and I have concerns and I have things that I want to protect as mine, and that's normal, right? But my neighbor has rights and concerns and things that he wants to protect as his, And what happens is that when we try to move towards each other or seek to love each other, we can't because because of those rights and concerns and things that are ours, our posture is this, right? This is how we have to confront each other. We're stuck threatening and fighting and seeking power because we're trying to safeguard what is ours. And the only way for peace to come is to do this. But here's the thing. This posture leaves us vulnerable. We might say, but then who's going to protect me? And who's going to keep my neighbor from punching me in the face and taking what's mine? And there are two answers to that question. And the first one is, quite simply, he might. (laughs) The example Jesus gives in this text is the Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He lays down his rights in love to serve the world, and they murder him. Of course, there's also a he might not, and that is something we can't lose sight of. There's always a risk in love, but there's also the possibility of reward. As long as we both keep our fists up like this, right? Peace and relationship are never going to come. And there is a, a real opportunity when we lower our hands for it to come and for something beautiful to be created. But they can punch you in the face too. That doesn't remove that first possibility. And that's why we need this image of God as the suffering servant to teach us not simply about how we should, are called to relate to the world, but also something about our relationship with God. The only way that you can ultimately take risks in loving the world is if you know that you have a security that doesn't rest on the world. 
The only way that you can take risks in loving human beings is if you have a security and a love that doesn't rest on those people. And that is what this image of God ultimately provides, a picture of our security in him. God's love for you can never change. It can never change because it doesn't rest on you or what you do. That's what's so striking about this text. It doesn't matter whether you're lovable or not. It doesn't matter whether you are good or not. It doesn't matter because texts like this one about God's love are not about you serving God. They're about God serving you. God in Jesus was pierced for the wrong things you do. His love is as solid as the iron spikes that went through his hand. God has borne all of the wrath and rejection you might deserve to bring you peace. His, his, his offering of that peace, that's his blood, right, that he shed for you. God has borne your sin on his back out of love for you, and there is none of it left. He has done all of that already. And as surely as he has done all of that himself, so sure is God's love for you. Which means when we face the world that we can take those risks of love and service and lower our fists because regardless of how the world responds and regardless of what comes, the God of the universe loves you and has your back. When my children are afraid, when they're nervous about going somewhere or doing something, what do I do? I I reach down and I take their hand, right? To tell them this might be hard, but I'm here with you and I love you. And when Elizabeth and I have faced hard news in our lives, struggling in hard things with, with pregnancies or with her cancer or whatever, what do we do? We, we take each other's hands, right? To say, this might be hard, but I am here with you and I love you. And we are imperfect. And the dangers in, it, there are dangers in this world that I can't protect my children from, right? And there are things that can happen in this life that I can't keep from happening for me and Elizabeth. But we still find this sort of security in the presence of each other's love. What we declare at Christmas through the story of Jesus is that God does that for us too. That he is there holding out his nail-pierced hands to us. Not that he instantly removes that suffering, no, but that he stands beside us as we face it. He is there with us and he is strong enough ultimately to overcome that darkness. The more we live into that, the more we long for and rest in God's love, the more we are able to love other people. Because what ultimately matters is secure for us. Even though there is darkness all around us and darkness within us, the light has loved us and it has called us his own. He is there with us and with that light around us and with us, the darkness cannot ultimately win. As we experience that love for us, we can then love the world. Our um, order of worship is a little bit different this morning. So we're actually going to move 